Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. It is a privilege always to be here with you all. And it's particularly joyful to be here with such a crowd. We've got somewhat of a packed house, and so this is awesome. And uh, we consider it a joy and a privilege for you all to be here with us and for you to join your hearts with ours as we look to Jesus. Because that's what today is about. That's what every day is about. Um, Some of you perhaps are here for tradition or because someone invited you or because you think it's just the right thing to do. But my hope and my, my intent with today's message, as with any time we herald the word of God here at Rivertown, is that um, you would see Jesus rightly. That you would marvel at his wonder, at his grace, and his love towards you. And that in seeing him rightly, you would worship. That's the goal in the aim always, that we would be worshipers what we were created to do. It's who we were created to be. Everything in life is worship. What are you giving your heart to, your time to, your affections to? What captivates your attention? For most of us, the answer is self. And the things we do, the, the objects we accumulate, all those things are to satisfy self. And if that's our predicament, we're missing it. We're missing the point of all of life. It's to see and savor our Creator in the face of Jesus Christ, His Son. And so today, my hope is that we would worship, that we would see Him rightly. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, And we're going to be looking at the gospel. Gospel means good news. It simply means good news. It's something that is heralded. It is proclaimed. The New Testament, in the original language, it's called preaching kerygma. It just means to declare, to herald. Many in our culture think of the word preaching in a a negative sense. Almost, it's almost used pejoratively. And yet, the Bible asserts that there is good news that must be preached. There is good news that is the only thing standing between you, life, or death. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What is this news? What is this news? And so, join me now as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This is a a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth some 20 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures and you would like one in your hands, and I'd recommend it, um, please raise your hand. No, no shame, there's no embarrassment. Someone will be glad to stick a copy of the Bible right in your hands. And so if you want to follow along with a paper copy, I recommend it over digital because digital is typically a distraction. 
then we have paper copies for you. So please raise your hand. All right, let's, let's read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Let's pray as we dive into the beauty and majesty of the word of God. Father, would you be pleased with this time? Lord, would you fan into flame the word of truth within us? And I pray that your word would cut and divide, that we would marvel at your majesty, that we would behold your beauty, that we would be awestruck at your almighty strength. Lord, have your way among us. Please meet us here now. Lord, would believers be encouraged and exhorted and strengthened? And I pray for those that do not know you, would they be convicted? Would you reveal to them their desperate need for salvation? Lord, please have your way among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you reveal yourself to us from your word? It's in your name I pray and I ask all this. Amen. I've, titled, I've entitled this sermon, The Vindication of Christ. The Vindication of Christ. We often think of the word vindicate as uh, retributive, but in a, meaning a negative sense, someone taking vengeance. But that's not always what it means. In fact, there's more support for this sentiment that it confirms something. It substantiates a claim. It proves something right or someone right. It justifies, it defends. And so today as we marvel at the grace of God in Christ, we will see that the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah is his vindication. Paul opens up this section as it continues in the letter with, with a section that I call what the gospel does. All right, what the gospel does. Look at verses one through, two, one through two. It causes us to stand. All right, the gospel causes us to stand. What does that mean? Does it mean I literally stand up out of my seat? Well, that would be an appropriate response to good news, but that's not what he's getting at. In Romans 5, Paul writes in another letter, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the gospel, it does this. It causes us to stand. It causes us to stand, to be able to stand before God in grace. And it's intentional. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting to what the gospel is per se just yet, but we're looking at what it does. We're just going through the order of the text. It causes us to stand. It is the means of our salvation. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Excuse me, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is the means of our salvation which would imply that there is no other means of salvation the gospel must be received and believed several times Paul points this out I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. This receiving is acceptance of it being true. It must be received and believed. If it's rejected, it is of no value to that person. The benefits are not applied. The gospel must be received and believed. In fact, Jesus tells a parable of a, a farmhand, a sower, going out and sowing in the field. He plants seeds. I'll just read Jesus' words for us. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is actually alluding to Old Testament phrases by saying, Look, I'm telling you something spiritual here. It's not just a story about a farmhand, about a sower, but I'm, I'm communicating a spiritual truth right now. And that's this, the word of God, the gospel, is like a seed. And as it's being planted, as it's being shared, it's being proclaimed, it's being preached, some will reject it immediately, right? Some of it will be stolen away by an enemy of sorts, a spiritual enemy. That's the birds plucking it off the ground. Some seed will be choked out by the cares of the world. You will, be, you will receive it, but it will not hold because you will be distracted by circumstances, by lusts of the flesh, by desires that are not spiritual. And only one of those seeds will actually 
take root, bear to harvest, and produce, produce a fruit of the harvest. Thus, Paul says, unless you believed in vain. So not only must the gospel be believed on and received, but there is a difference in vain belief or authentic belief. There's a difference. And in the moment, we might not know the difference. But time, time will tell. Time will tell. That's why he says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. If you have believed on it and have received it, and if you hold fast to it until the end, then it is clear that you did not believe in vain. It's clear. But if you're here today, gone tomorrow, then what am I to make of that? What are we as a church to make of that in someone's life that says, well, they, they prayed a prayer or they confessed Jesus 10 years ago, but they're not really walking according to the scriptures or they're not continuing to declare God and his mercy in Christ today. I have no reason, the church has no reason to affirm saving faith. The gospel must be received, it must be believed, and it must be held fast to. The gospel does this, though, for us. You'll see how. The gospel does this for us. All right, verses 3 through 4, what the gospel is. Or in other words, we can ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news of God in Christ. It's a very simple formula. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. That is Jesus. Christ is a title. It mean, it's the Greek equivalent to Messiah, to the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one meaning the one who has been anointed for the task at hand, the one who has been set apart to fulfill the word of God. Christ is a title, not really a name, okay? Paul, Paul comes up with the title Jesus Christ, but it's, uh, again, it means Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. So Christ died for our sins, for our sins, according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The, the New Testament was being written as, we, as he speaks. If you think about that. Right? He's literally pinning this letter that becomes part of the New Testament canon. So what does he mean according to the scriptures? He's referencing back to the Old Testament. That's right. Christ died for our sins according to what had been previously written in the word of God. It was plain to them. Some of you might have this presupposition. I don't know, but it's common, so I would assume people in the room might think this, that the God of the New Testament is somehow fundamentally different than the God of the Old Testament. That we see this mean 
wrathful, vengeful God in the Old Old Testament who punishes people out of nowhere. And then you have Jesus, love, peace, and chicken grease. You know, that was a... uh, that was a phrase on a restaurant I used to go to. <laughs> and that somehow it's all right in Jesus. He's, he's good. He's good. You know, silly phrases like Jesus is my homeboy or, you know, I'm good with the man upstairs, et cetera, et cetera. It's ridiculous. But people have these fundamental presuppositions, largely because of how culture purports the gospel of Christ and how churches historically have done a bad job with discipleship and teaching the word of God. But, but I'm here to tell you that the gospel fulfills the Old Testament and confirms it. And it paves a way, it inaugurates a way in which we as those who believe on Christ and entrust ourselves to him, fulfill the demands of the Old Testament. And we're going to see that. We're going to see it. And it's specific to Jesus' death and resurrection. But because we're in a a sermon series in the book of Genesis right now, we're continuing in that sermon series, I'm going to give three examples from Genesis alone on how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Remember, the Old Testament people of God were longing, were longing for a fulfillment of specific promises. The substitutionary death of God's anointed was long anticipated by the people of God. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree they were not supposed to do, sin enters into our world, and they're cursed. In Genesis 3, we see this. God says, the seed of the woman, that is an an heir to come, an offspring to come, the seed of the woman would strike the head of the serpent. If you remember, the serpent was was the tempter, the accuser in that situation. The serpent from the wilderness comes in and twists the truth of God and in doing so causes Adam and Eve to say no to God and yes to self. But there's this promise in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman is going to strike the head, strike the head of the serpent. But in the process, his heel would be struck. His heel would be struck. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, though he himself is struck by the serpent. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3. Then we get to Genesis 22. Abraham is being tested. He had been promised a child. He had been promised an heir through whom Abraham would bless the entire world and would populate a a nation. Yet God says, go and sacrifice this son. I'm calling you to sacrifice your son. And all along the way, Abraham is saying, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. And in the the climax of that scene with the knife raised, God does provide, but it's not a lamb. 
God provides an unblemished ram whose horns were caught in the thicket. And that ram becomes the substitute for Isaac in that moment. But that leaves the reader wondering, where then is the lamb? The promise was that God would provide a lamb. Where is it? Jesus is the long-awaited sacrificial lamb. He is the one that the Lord would provide for the sacrifice. Genesis 37 through 50. It's a long narrative. We're not there yet in our series, but we're getting there. So if you're looking to get ahead, here it is. Joseph, a son of the patriarch Jacob, was sentenced to death by his brothers. He was handed over to death. His brothers were jealous of him. They did not like the blessings he had received from their father Jacob, and they were utterly jealous. So they, they devised a plan to get rid of him. They wanted him to die. Then one of the other brothers felt a little bad in the moment, so they're like, well, we'll just let him die on his own. We won't actually kill him. But they supposed that he had died. Eventually, he, becomes, he, he comes to a position of power and prominence in the land of Egypt, and a famine strikes the land. A famine strikes the land, and the entire family of Jacob is at risk. The entire family. You don't live without food. Joseph hears of this as they seek refuge and supplies from Egypt, and he welcomes his brothers back. And he acts as their redeemer. He acts as their redeemer. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph. Because Jesus actually dies so that we might become his spiritual brothers and live. That's just three spots in Genesis. And that's the first book of the Bible. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There's a vast number of specific prophecies throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to read a few for your, for your knowledge that you can reference. Read the entire Psalm, uh, Psalm 22. Read the entire thing. Psalm 34, Psalm 69, Psalm 116, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12. And these aren't just prophecies or, or foreshadowings of the Messiah, but they're specific to his death and that his death would be substitutionary for our sin. Write those down. Look at them on your own. I promise you'll be amazed. I promise you'll be amazed. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So why then? Why? Why did he have to die? To what end, to what purpose was his death for? Jesus' death was necessary. It is necessary because of the magnitude of sin. Because of the magnitude of sin. Sin, it's a Bible term, but it simply means missing the mark That's the most, it, it's used in a lot of different ways, but, but fundamentally, it's most commonly seen as missing the mark or 
falling short of a standard. Falling short of a standard. The Bible asserts that the standard is God's righteousness as revealed in the law of God. Sin deserves an infinite punishment. You might think, that's harsh. That's harsh. I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. How? How is that fair that God would punish my sins in such a way? Or that he even thinks I should be punished in that sort of way? It's because sin is an offense. It's a rejection of an infinitely glorious, beautiful, and holy God. Your refusal to live under his rule and reign is absolutely worthy of every drop of wrath he could pour out. Because he is holy and we are not. He is right and we are wrong. He is God and we are not. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Listen to this. Jesus' bodily death is both the cost and the price paid for our debt before a holy God. Do you, do you catch that? His bodily death, his broken body and his spilled blood is both the cost and the price paid for our debt before God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived perfectly before the Father, completely holy, completely set apart, completely obedient. In not one way did he err from the righteous standard of God. Not, in not one way. No matter how many of us die, our debt cannot really be paid because our debt is infinite. Our debt is infinite because it's against an infinite God. And yet, Jesus, God incarnate, God incarnate, comes and he lives a perfect life. And because it's not just a man dying, but it's God giving himself over to death, the infinite debt is paid. That was the cost. It was infinite. And he's also able to afford the bill. Jesus' bodily death is both the cost and the price paid for our debt before God. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This also indicates the weight of the law. Here's where those two worlds begin to collide. If the law was just something that was temporary for the people of God at a specific time and place, we know that is Israel, the ethnic people, Israel, 
And the law just somehow disappears in the new covenant. And Jesus brings in a new covenant, which he does. But if we, if we support that to the exclusion of the previous one, then we're missing out on the debt that was owed. But the fact that the Father sent heaven's finest, the treasure of heaven, to pay the debt means that the righteous standard revealed in the law is real. It's real. And so the law still has a use in showing us the standard of God Almighty. But praise be to God that Christ has paid the debt. He's paid the debt. In Galatians 2, 19 through 21, I love this. Paul writes this. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Did you catch that first phrase, though? For through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean by that? He means that because of his faith in the efficacious work of Christ, he has been bound with Christ in his death and will be bound with him in his resurrection. Meaning, Jesus took his place. We all owe a debt. The law demands it. The law says, if you will live by this, if this is your righteousness, then everything hinges on it. If you practice these things, then you must live by these things. And any error is worthy of an eternal punishment because you break the law in one spot, you've broken the whole law. What do we call someone that robs a bank? Sure, but more generally, a criminal. They're a criminal. They might not have murdered somebody. They might not have uh, committed some white-collar crime, but they're a criminal. You see that? You break the law in one spot, you're a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. And we've all fallen short of that standard. And yet, the law's demand is fulfilled in Christ. It's why Paul can say, for through the law, I have died to the law. Because Jesus is our death. Jesus is our death. That's good news. That's good news. In Romans 7, Paul gives the illustration of marriage. It's unfortunate that our culture views marriage in such little, they, they esteem it so lowly to their demise. Marriage is a covenant. It always has been. What are, what are the vows a husband and a wife make on that day? Till death do us part. That's covenantal language. Paul asserts in Romans 7 that we were married to the law. 
That covenant can't be broken except by death. Except by death. And by faith, we die to the law with Christ. And the death, the, the death that we experience with him, it, it creates a divide now between us and the law where it no longer has a say. It doesn't mean that we don't fulfill it. The scriptures continue on in saying that in Christ, by the Spirit, we fulfill the demands of the law. But it no longer has a say. We are no longer under its curse because Jesus paid the debt. We have joined him in death towards the law. Jesus' death also serves as the standard by which the world will be judged. Because it proves that the law really is the law, again, and that it is the righteous standard of God. So that all who are still under the law, or perhaps they're outside of God's covenants entirely, but they are a law unto themselves, as Romans asserts, they will be judged. On the last day, if they do not hide themselves under the grace and love of Christ, they will be judged. And the cross is the standard by which they will be judged. Jesus asserts this. He alludes to it in John 12. He even says in the coming of his crucifixion, he says, now comes the judgment of the world because this is love poured out and you refused it. This is a debt paid and you've rejected it. This is hope made alive, and you'd rather wallow in death. Christ's crucifixion is the standard by which the world will be judged. All right, next in Paul's formula is Christ was buried. Seems redundant, but it's not. And it must be reiterated. Because he really died, he was really buried. This detail is important because there have been many accusers and false teachers that have come and gone that would say that Jesus' death was simply a mirage. If he was truly from heaven, he looked as though he were in the flesh, but really he was a spirit. Because think about it. If God in the flesh, is not really in the flesh, did he really experience pain? Did he really die? And if he was just a man and God didn't die, did he really pay for our sins? It is critical. It is of first importance that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried, thus proving he was both God and man. Jesus' body, his dead body, was taken to a tomb that was donated to him by a rich man. And the tomb was then sealed with a large stone that could only be moved by several men. In Matthew, it, we see this in all the, the Gospels, but uh, I'm going to read this pericope from Matthew. Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. 
When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Jesus really died, and therefore he was really buried. His crucified body was carried to a tomb hewn out of, a, of stone, a cave, really, and he was covered to be left there as any other dead person is left forever. But thankfully, the gospel doesn't stop there. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See that phrase for a second time, in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was raised on the third day. That means he didn't stay dead. It's what we call resurrection. And it's fundamentally different than some of the other stories in the Bible, right? There was a little girl brought back to life in Lazarus. We would call that revivification, meaning they come back to life, but they're going to die again. Resurrection means you conquer death once and for all. You conquer death once and for all. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus, the one who died for the sins of the world, who took on the punishment of eternal sin and suffering, did not stay dead, but he was raised to the newness of life. He resurrected. And guess what? It was in accordance with the scriptures. The people of God have long awaited the eternal life of the anointed one, the Messiah. Hosea 6, 1 through 2, I love this. Hosea's a prophet, and he's writing to the people. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Earlier in Hosea, there's another prophecy that alludes to Jesus when he says, I'll call my son out of Egypt. Matthew confirms that when Jesus was a babe, they had fled to Egypt, and then they come back and they re-enter into Judea, and it's a fulfillment of that illusion. But Hosea 
all prophecies have an immediate fulfillment and a, a future fulfillment, or at least a foreshadowing. I would encourage you all, if you're really interested in this, and I, you should be, <laughs> is that uh, there's this uh, website called Blue Letter Bible. Maybe it's .com, .org. Blue Letter Bible. And they have every single reference and allusion to the Old Testament found in the New Testament in the order of appearance. In the order of appearance. It is jaw-dropping. It is jaw-dropping. They can't even fit them all on a single list, so they have five parts. And there's probably a hundred or more on each part. But I'd recommend you do that. Blueletterbible.com or .org. It's a great resource. But listen, there's this immediate fulfillment. Hosea is calling the people of Israel to repent. He says, you'll be stricken. There's discipline. But then we'll be raised to life on the third day. But we know from the Gospels that Jesus is the truer and better Israel. That Jesus really was stricken physically. And he really was raised on the third day. Jesus is the truer and better Israel. He is the true fulfillment of Hosea's call to Israel. And again, in Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, David's writing, and he's really, it's a psalm where he's taking hold of the promises of God. It's a short psalm. Read it today. He's grabbing hold of the promises of God, and he's, he's writing in belief, in hope and in belief. And he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But that verse 10, very specifically, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the, is the afterlife in the Hebrew mind, okay? Uh, we see through the course of scriptures more and more information. We call it progressive revelation in terms of what an afterlife might look like. But to the Hebrew mind, there was Sheol or the pit. It wasn't necessarily hell or heaven, but it's not a place you'd want to go because who wants to die? They rightly understood God is judge and immediate blessings for living rightly before God was life and, uh, and blessings in the present life, strength, uh, hope, possessions. Um, you know, in terms of Israel, it would mean that they would be blessed as a nation and they would be set over and against their neighbors, okay? So the plea to not be given over to Sheol is this idea that don't let me die, don't let my body decay in the pit. And he says, you, for you, Lord, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus is the son of David. His genealogy makes that clear. And David's hopes are ultimately fulfilled in his offspring, the Christ. Because Jesus was not abandoned to Sheol. And his body saw no corruption. He did not rot in that tomb. But he was raised to life 
in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' resurrection is the means of our justification. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' resurrection is the means of our justification. In Romans 4, Paul's writing about righteousness by faith and using Abraham, whom we referenced earlier, as an example to this righteousness that comes by faith alone. And that was a good one. Paul writes, in reference to Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, again, talking about Abraham, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In that one verse, we see the perfect formula. Delivered up for our trespasses, right? He paid the debt owed and raised for our justification. What what does that mean? Justification is being made right. It's It's being declared. You no longer have a debt to pay. You are no longer in the wrong. You are no longer in error. But you're made right. You're made right. How does Jesus' resurrection make us right? This is where these two worlds meet and the title of the sermon find fulfillment. The resurrection of Christ is the vindication that he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then his death was not meaningless, but his death actually paid for our sins. And his resurrection is proof that he is the son of God, he is the son of man, and he is our savior. The resurrection is the vindication of Christ. It proves he is who he says he is. It proves he is who he says he is. And that is good news. All of this banks on that. In fact, Christianity is a house of cards if Jesus is not alive today. It's a house of cards that should have pummeled eons ago. But because through the line of history, the church and those who have received the tradition of the gospel... Like Paul says, look, I'm giving to you what is of first importance, what I have received. Because we herald that this actually happened, that this is historical fact. The church has stood its ground against the wind and waves of nations, cultures, worldviews, totalitarianism, you name it. Against the gates of hell itself, the church has stood on the rock of Christ. Because Jesus is alive. The resurrection happened.
And this formula is the rule by which Christianity is measured. This formula is the rule by which Christianity is measured. Anything less than Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, anything less than that is not the gospel and it is therefore a lie. It is not Christianity. There are many of false teachers and teachings that would purport otherwise, that would uh, take to modify this and make it maybe not literal. Oh, Jesus, he resurrects on a spiritual sense. He's been elevated by his followers. No. Jesus has literally defeated death. Has literally defeated death. This is the mark of Christianity. He has paid for our sins. He died as both God and man. And though he was buried, he defeated death. He has popped out the tomb. This is Christianity. Nothing else will stand. Nothing else will save. Nothing else will save you from yourself. This is the gospel. Jesus' resurrection is also our inheritance and our future glory. At the end of this chapter, Paul writes this, I tell you, brothers, I tell you, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. All right, think about perishable food versus imperishable food. Perishable, us, we will die one day. Every breath you breathe is one breath closer to death. I hate to break it to you. The perishable cannot inherit what is imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. He's talking about the last day. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Raising on the third day in accordance with the scripture is our inheritance and our future glory. It's what we're longing for. It's what we're longing for. If there was no different outcome because of the gospel than us living these lives and dying and the world being done, right? Game over. I'm just an animal. I cease to exist. What, what news is that? What hope is that? But the fact that Jesus has inaugurated for us our resurrection through his own. He is the firstborn from among the dead. This is good news. This is good news.
Now into verses 5 through 7. The gospel defended. As, er, as stated earlier, the gospel, excuse me, the resurrection serves as the vindication, the proof that God's word is true and that Jesus truly is the anointed one. The risen Christ appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Cephas is his Aramaic name. Uh, back in the day, people were smarter than us. They spoke multiple languages. And Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. That is the, the disciples, the closest disciples of Jesus. He appeared to them. He made himself known to them in his resurrected body. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Remember, this, is, this was written about 20 years after these events. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that is his half-brother, then to all the apostles. How do we know that the resurrection actually happened? It's because there are eyewitnesses. There are eyewitnesses. There have been these men, in particular the twelve, most of them died at the hands of martyrdom because they refused to reject the fact that they saw the risen Christ. What would you say if a gun were pointed at your head? Would you say whatever you could to get out of it? Depends on what you're being asked to say. Sure. But these men, when by the threat of death were told, you must recant the resurrection of Christ, they said no. No. Because they saw him with their eyes. They touched him. They ate a meal with him. They saw the holes in his arms. They saw the resurrected Christ. And nothing would ever change that fact for them. And not only that, but he made an appearance to more than 500 people at one time. Imagine that. There may be close to 100 people in the room right now. Maybe. Maybe if we count people downstairs. 500 people at one time all verify the same experience. We saw the living Christ. We saw him resurrected. Remember, he was buried, which indicates he would tr was truly dead. And if he was truly dead, and he was truly buried, and now he's alive, then he's truly resurrected. And this is the proof. This, again, the vindication of Christ. He's alive. He is alive. And then he makes his appearance again to the 12 disciples, or to the, those close disciples. But this time Paul calls them the apostles. Apostle means sent one or messenger because this appearance happened right before Pentecost. It happened right before he charged them to fulfill his mission and promised that he would give them his spirit from on high. And now they have a mission because they have a message. They have a mission because they have a message. And the message is the gospel. And if you are in the room today and you belong in Christ, you can thank these men 
for that because they did not let the good news of God saving us in Christ die with them. Think about that. Think about that. Trace the good news back historically and you see the mul- multitudes of men and women who were faithful to the end. And now Paul, and even writing this letter, is being faithful because he says, look, I've delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. So the gospel we know is true because Jesus lives and there is sufficient evidence of his life. And finally... we see the gospel on display. I love this. Paul testifies to his salvation as one untimely born. Yet in the Lord, I think he was born right on time. He was born right on time. The gospel affords rescue and pardon to even the most unworthy of people. Paul persecuted the church. He hated them. He despised them. He thought they were a religious cult that was dangerous to the Jewish institution. And he sought to imprison them and to murder them. And yet Christ appeared to him as one untimely born. Remember, the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus is both the cost and the price paid for redemption. And the risen Jesus confronted Paul and showed him the error of his ways. And he repented and believed. The treasure of heaven emptied himself out to the point of death that you might receive him and have newness of life. So don't misunderstand this. The standard of righteousness was met in Christ. The debt has been paid. The debt to God was paid by Christ and the gift of God is given in Christ. It's all from him and for him. But we get to receive the beauty of it the mercy of it, and the love of it. Because it paid our debt. It inaugurated for us a, a new way into the throne room of grace. And so, f- for those in the room that maybe feel outside of the covenant of God, of maybe you don't feel like you're in the household of faith, or that this overwhelming mercy and grace is yours, if you don't feel that, or if you don't think that today, then my invitation is to come. Be like Paul as one untimely born, but let today be the day of salvation. No matter who you are today, the gospel is powerful enough to take you, to save you, and to carry you while the Lord transforms you into the person he has redeemed you to be. That's the good news. That's the good news. So in conclusion, the worship team would like to come up. In conclusion, in, as we recap, the good news is this. It's the news of Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ buried, Jesus Christ resurrected. And that news is the only true good news. It's the only good news. And do we believe it? I mean, sure, 
for those of you in the Lord, we, we, we call ourselves believers. But my hope today is that it wouldn't just be intellectual belief, but that from the depths of our very being, we bank on it. We're always telling people news. I'm not a native New Englander, so don't feel too bad when I say this, but I, I always think that Vermonters love to be pessimistic. People love telling bad, mo- bad news. <laughs> it's like the way of life up here. Yet, everyone needs good news. We're all longing for it and hoping for it. And when we have good news, we share it with coworkers, with family, with friends, with neighbors. We do. Say you bought a new toy or this health concern has been alleviated, whatever it is. But do you believe, do you trust that this is the best news that the world has ever heard? Let's dwell on it and entrust ourselves to it. Everything else falls short. Nothing else in life compares. I guarantee you that. For the believer in the room, the gospel is the news of our salvation, our justification, our righteousness, and our glory. Therefore, do not continue in sin. Do not mock what has been accomplished in Christ. Nor should you attempt to now be justified by the law, but rest in what is yours. Rest in it. Believe it, because it is yours in Christ. He has given us everything we need in the resurrected Messiah. For the non-believer, the gospel is the revelation of the beauty, the holiness, and the perfection of God Almighty in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the standard by which you will be judged. The only hope you have to be free from your sins and free from yourself is the gospel. You, like Paul, could be one untimely born today because today is the day of salvation every day you're one step closer to death do not tarry when the call to hope life and redemption is yours entrust yourself to christ today because he is risen let's pray you are glorious and you are good and you've proved your goodness towards us in giving us your son I pray that we would revel in your mercies and that we would treasure your glory and your goodness towards us that we would not be content with ourselves that we would not continue striving in the flesh and attempting to perfect ourselves or to be our own saviors Lord we repent that we love ourselves more than we love you Please draw our hearts to higher affections. Give us spiritual sight, spiritual hearing, and a love that is first born of you because you first loved us. Please, would you do it today? And I pray that we would marvel at your majesty, that we would worship you as we ought. Thank you, Christ, for being the sufficient sacrifice and for defeating death. We know our hope and glory is with you. We trust you for all things. It's in your name I pray and I ask this. Amen.